Welcome to Netflix and Skill, where we go deep into our favorite movies and how they were made. Come join us. Hi, and welcome to the inaugural episode of Netflix and Skill. This is your co-host, Matt McGuinness. And I'm Brandon Wade, and together Matt and I teach in the Media Arts Department here at Royal Holloway. Brandon, we're here because we both love movies and we were basically glued to the screen, particularly around the millennium, like Y2K, remember? Oh, yeah. The whole millennium bug thing that never came to be, well, kind of did. Good times, right? Uh, The world didn't melt down. (laughs) Um, So I'm just going to ask you straight away, uh, was it the best time for cinema around about then? It was certainly an exciting time and it was a, a cool time to come up. Um, as a young filmmaker, what with uh, the emergence of digital and stuff like that, um, it's debatable. But I think it was a perfect time for a lot of great revolutions. Yeah, the technical advancements, technical advancements. in the industry, pushing industry, the story yeah. forward, but not completely overblown like I think what is going on right now in Hollywood. But debatable. Yeah, yeah. You, you definitely have to pick through it with a bit of a fine-tooth comb nowadays. So, what is your favorite movie? Well, as you know, Matt, you and I uh, host some screenings here at Royal Holloway, and recently we showed Children of Men by Alfonso Cuaron. Great movie. While that is probably my all-time most enjoyable film experience, the film that got me started wanting to make movies was actually Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind by Michel Gondry. So good. Yeah. So after you screened it, I remembered all the great videos he's done, and I had to go and watch them all again and read up everything about a lot of them. Um, I just think music videos are a great way to develop that visual style. Yeah, totally. Um, with Gondry, you know him straight away. Whenever you see any of his work, it's just Gondry. You know it straight away. Yeah, he's got a signature style. So there's so much to talk about with this movie. Um, but let's start off with the story, and I'll try and steer us through. Okay, let's dive in. So let's talk about how the movie came to be. Back in 1998, apparently the film's co-writer had a friend who was complaining about her boyfriend, as you do, and he asked her, if she could erase him from her mind, would she do it? And she said, <laughs> yeah, she would. So uh, he basically stole that idea. His name was Pierre Bismuth and shared the idea with Kaufman, Charlie Kaufman. Not to be confused, writer. not Andy Kaufman, who I confused him with. <laughs> and their pitch was bought by Propaganda Films, who had David Fincher as a founding member. Um, if people don't know David Fincher, um, he directed Alien 3, 7, Fight Club, Gone Girl, uh, the pilot episode of House of Cards. Uh, and propaganda films were so successful by 1990, they were producing about a third of all music videos in America. That's crazy. Wow. I've so seen a lot of those videos growing up, I suppose. Yeah. Um, and Kaufman delayed writing the screenplay. In the meantime, Christopher Nolan releases Memento, which also has a nonlinear plot and deals with memory being erased. Ah, so, yes, yes, yes. Yeah. What a great movie that is. Maybe we'll show that at some stage. That could definitely come up in some of the screenings. So Kaufman gets cold feet and almost cancels the whole thing and the studio weren't happy, um, but he wanted to keep the film simple and he, he played on anyway. He wanted to focus on the relationship between the characters, um, but he has um, Michel Gondry, um, so that's not ever going to stay a simple visual movie. It's going to be a really big visual element if you have Gondry on board. Um, so Kaufman had two main problems writing the script. The first one was showing the memories themselves Joel's reaction to the memories, Joel is played by Jim Carrey. So his sort of Mm -hmm. character reacting to the memories unfolding. 
And then very cleverly, Joel interacting with Clementine outside of the memories in the moments. So there's kind of different layers going on of reactions and each layer becomes reacted to in a way and becomes um, consequential. So he solved this by making Joel lucid and able to comment on his memories as very he was clever, going through. Very clever technique. Did that help for you understand what was happening? Because I think it did. Absolutely. I mean, I think it was kind of essential. Without that element, the whole thing falls apart. I mean, it's it's already hanging by a bit of a thin thread and dangling from in between mainstream and kind of avant-garde filmmaking. But I think by making him lucid and by making him aware of what's happening, it really grounds the audience in the experience. Yeah, uh, I mean, just about enough to take us through the end, which is just sort of riding that fine line, which is mm -hmm. what makes it exciting because you're kind of not knowing what's going on, but also trying to figure it out just about. Yeah. So um, also the characters um, could refer in later scenes to already erased memories, which was a bit of a problem. So he solved this by making the memories degrade gradually instead of vanishing immediately. And Again, that's a very organic way to approach it, you know, because I think that's probably what happens in our minds, you know, as we age and yeah. we start to fade. This is a really creative um, solution because, um, yeah, like you say, these are things that happen with age. So the solutions end up making the thing richer other than just sort of patching holes in a sinking ship. Um, so instead, the characters only completely forget things when they wake up from their hypnosis state if you like so really clever stuff to yeah. do with the script there i think that's an important thing for writers to realize that while there's a lot of freedom you also have to make sure that the that the story has rules because you're going to have people trying to poke holes in you know conspiracy theorists saying oh well he kind of woke up midway through like why couldn't he abort it but um i think who among us hasn't heard of or perhaps even experienced a bout of sleep paralysis it's it's a kind of scary thing to go through but um I think we felt like we were locked and trapped in the body of Joel when he uh, opens his eyes mid uh, erasing. Yeah, it's kind of like this uh, limbo state um, that we all know so well, but it's really hard for us to understand because we just don't know what's going on with our brains, really. Yeah. I think another thing they do really well there is blending the things going on in his mind, the things going on outside of his mind, and making sure that there's a clear distinction between the two Again, it allows us to kind of connect to the re real world time and then obviously the kind of infinite time that could be happening in his mind, which sometimes plays out in parallel. And again, it's it's done almost surgically such that using the, the laws and rules of editing and sound design, the audience feels like they're experiencing it all temporally at the same time and nothing seems too jarring. And, and it, I think that's a great achievement of that. Absolutely. You're just going through the same thing and it's a lot to take in. And it actually brings up a lot of memories and things that you might have latent in your mind Yeah. as you're watching it. It's just so smart. And it's just such a great premise to set. And you can, you can kind of feel or imagine how nervous they must have been. Is this thing going to, what's it going to be like? Okay, I've got the script yeah. here. What, where is it going to go? Who, you know, these people involved, are they going to be able to tell my story the way I want it told? Yeah, and actually that's really fascinating what you mentioned about Kaufman because I didn't know any of that and I've always revered Kaufman as one of the great writers of all time, screenwriters of all time, um, kind of on a parallel to someone like Philip K. Dick who, who you know, who yeah. wrote a lot of... Philip K. Dick. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> hey, we're going to be dropping some 
some names here. Um, and some of the films that have been adapted from from his stories are are really far out and cool as well. Um, Blade Runner being one, and again, yeah. Scanner Darkly is another good one. Yeah, and you know the whole Netflix series. I don't I don't think he'd be happy with uh, a lot of the way that his vision has been portrayed. Like the books are so out there. Yeah, Valis, in some cases probably great novels. So yeah, that's a hard to you know it's a it's a fine line, but this particular movie um, is set up for um, a very ambitious script. And I think one more note to get in for the writers out there, I was always told in film school, write what you know. And so I think there's a, there should be a little truth to every story that you write. You know, Don't just fabricate a completely brand new world. I know I tried to do a lot of that in my film school days and it was unsuccessful. So for Kaufman, having this real world connection to someone who was thinking of erasing their partner what a perfect um, premise for a story to then blossom into this um, unique experience. Yeah, so the stage is set and it's just about keeping it very human, right? Yeah, totally. So two things that didn't make the final cut. One, Clementine was originally supposed to become more robotic. Um, <laughs> as Thank the, God that didn't happen. Yeah, I mean, it's a good idea, like more robotic. With makes your, sense. Yeah, because they want um, him to feel disconnected from her. And Sounds like a tragedy, though, rather than a... It's sad, like forgetting hopeful. who she is. Yeah, yeah as yeah. their relationship goes on, he sort of just slowly forgets who this person is that he got to know. And, and reasons. I, think, I think they replaced that more with the mise-en-scene and the production design because you see the memories themselves decaying, whereas she kind of grows even more aware of what's happening. Again, we mentioned the possibility of, the, of her being a bit of a deus ex machina in that case. Oh, very good. Can you explain <laughs> mise en scène? Yeah. Well, I think, I think you're well aware. It's kind of what's just directly, literally in the scene. So everything you see around the characters, and in the case of Eternal Sunshine, um, the props, the set design, the locations themselves start to degrade, deteriorate, and in some cases just go blank and white and empty. And so... Everything around the two of them is disappearing. And in some cases, indeed, she disappears. And you'll hear that little audio cue, which is a great sound design, Pavlovian um, trick to, to let the mind know that another memory has been deleted. It was something along the lines of tick-clink or something. Yep. It's like a very... Clue. Yeah. <laughs> Light bulb. Okay, so before we go on to sound and the visual aesthetic, let's just uh, wrap up the script's um, yes. comments. It, it's just interesting to find out that, um, you know, they actually wanted her to become like a robot as the movie progressed. Mm. And the fact that she didn't, it gives hope for Joel. Uh, it kind of makes it more of a positive story because there's a moment that you think, oh, God, this is just, uh, this is too much um, TMI. Um but yeah, so instead of making her more robotic, um, Gondry's style delivers the the sense of visual degradation of the world while the characters persevere. And that is just really, again, really human and uh, optimistic. You know, the characters keep on trucking, or that's an awful expression. Uh, <laughs> that's great. Keep on please, trucking. Please keep using Old that, characters Matt. keep on trucking. <laughs> um, and yeah, he chooses to keep them alive, even though the world is dying. So yeah, it says yeah. it does not say so much, and that's a solution um, to a problem. It makes it a real journey, I think, for the two of them. And in fact, if you're looking at it from the big picture, when you step back, that's really the relationship that we see is the relationship that they share in his mind. Although, of course, it's a representation of the true memories of the past. The mm. film, ontologically, is an experience of Joel's self in his mind with, mm. with her um, and the character that he's made her up to be. 
And um, another thing, bizarrely, that didn't make the final cut is apparently uh, Ellen Pompeo is a, um, apparently the, one of the highest paid actors in the world. Oh, man. She was actually filmed as Joel's girlfriend, um, and they completely cut that from the movie. You know um, what? I'm really glad for that fact. I I looked her up. I didn't know her by name, but I looked her up, saw, saw a picture of, of her face, and I thought, yes, she's a perfect Naomi for the film, mm. for kind of the, the partner of Joel, but... What were you going to say, I think, why uh, why they made that choice? Well, again, it, you can maybe imagine why without knowing, or or maybe mm. you can guess. And mm. I, I think the reason for this is because it by not having her in there, by having him as a sort of, uh, you know, like in a way he's a sort of singleton, it <laughs> preserves your empathy. And I, totally, I, I totally. think movies are all about empathy. I think that's what movies are. They're just uh, stories of, of empathy. So yeah. to not see him moving on, um, it kind of, um, in addition to preventing the story from going too crazy, it just kind of keeps you grounded on the triangle that exists between um, the two and Elijah Wood's yeah. character, for example, or yeah. just them two, really. It's all about them two. Um, and it just goes to show, if there's a tough call that you have to make in post, it's better late than never, right? So they obviously decided to make yeah. that decision after they filmed. What a waste of money, but a good call. <laughs> I mean, she's not an essential plot point, but it also leads me to think could they have gotten away with not mentioning or having him in a relationship at all? And how does that change the story? I guess it just makes me curious because, you know, I always remember that little fact that he was supposedly engaged. And in a way, it's funny because you would never call Eternal Sunshine a chick flick. Mm -hmm. But that element almost relates it to some kind of, oh, you know, it's not too late, you know, to find your true love after you've kind of fallen into something, you know? It's not a fairy tale story. No, it's no. It's yeah. delicate. The way that it handles it is, is very delicately done and it serves every type of viewer who's been in that situation, I think. So, Have you been engaged, Matt? Uh, negative. <laughs> n- negative. Um, no, not that I'm, no. It's not the sort of thing you do and, and then forget about it the next day, you know? No, certainly not. But apparently Joel, Joel was able to do that. Um, no, but you're right. It humanizes him. I don't know why I'm, I'm, I'm kind of taking time on this right now. It's just, I'm definitely, I'm a believer in loyalty. Um, and, and let's, let's be fair. He didn't actually do anything physical with Clementine when he met her at the beach. He Mm. wasn't being disloyal. You know, he, he followed along on kind of on her adventure. He, He broke into the house. I think what, what made the change happen in him was that her impulsiveness awoke something inside of him and then at that point he probably made a decision to shift gears and rather than continue with uh Mm. with his current partner to to go and pursue pursue her at um at the bookstore and then Mm. that's where we we see the story really begin yeah and uh, you know kind of again portrays this moment in the relationship where the two of you have been through a lot together and you just kind of retrospectively look back and and what you've been through and just at arm's length just kind of acknowledge it and be like okay wow um yeah that happened sort of thing and that moment in the beach was that moment i think very it's nice. incredible to be able to look back and sometimes i think we all wish we could do that as well as as i'm sure we all do in the cinema of our own minds and memories <laughs> Okay, cool. So before we go down a rabbit hole of um, relationships, <laughs> yes, we should stuff, move on to the next. Um, let's talk about the visual aesthetic of the movie. A lot to yeah, talk about. Absolutely. Um, let's think about how does the look of the film support the story 
that's being told and the relationships between the characters because otherwise we're just talking about oh it looks good let's mm-hmm, talk about mm-hmm. um how it actually uh, pushes the story along so you've mentioned it already but um gondry's whole style is taking an authentic location and turning it into a weird dream with yeah, like yeah. surreal props and theatrical changes of the set in real time as it's being filmed which has become a slight uh you know i'm, I'm gimmick can we use the word gimmick but he he's the you know the 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 master of this in a way. In, it can in, yeah, it can be gimmicky if it's not used tastefully and with a purpose. Mm-hmm. And I mean, even in a film like Eternal Sunshine, which I love, it, it, some moments border on that. Um, when forced perspectives are used, uh, for instance, when he's a child and mm. he's in his kitchen under the table, and oh, I love that bit though. It's oh, just like done it. so well, like it, because yeah. the the story saves it from being an indulgence, right? I the agree. The fact that oh, he's back, he's he's lost himself in childhood memory. And that for me, that was like the sweetest part of the movie because, oh, yeah, that the bit where you know they're kind of like uh, they're out in the garden and they're kind of um, they're they're doing something wrong with an animal, you know. It, yeah, it's just yeah. so good. That is really powerful and beautiful, and I think John Bryan has a great little score accompaniment there that's quite uh, quite kind of sad and reminds you of of nostalgia. And maybe this is me just either not having too many traumatic experiences as a child or, or maybe just having blocked them out. But, um, but it, it paints a picture of, of something that is, is delicate and beautiful. And mm. even if you haven't experienced that, I think you're able to go there because he yeah. takes you there, you know, it's fragile. It's like the fragility of just growing up and dealing with different situations. And again, yeah. he just kind of got that in a side scene, you know, I, I think one of the marks of a really good story is one that you feel could go down any number of anecdotes it, it tells, but it keeps on on the main point, you know? Um, yeah. But just, just to keep this about the visual. Right. There's so much to talk about. Um, Gondry gives the whole movie like a dream sort of a feel. It's uh, like you say, his mise-en-scene is his sort of placing yep. on stage, yep. his trademark. So um, there's a few points to discuss without going down any uh, one particular one in detail because um, I think it would be great to have some more qualified cinematographers on the show, um, on the podcast, speaking Absolutely. about this in, in the future, which I plan to do, such great. as uh, Maeve O'Connell. Awesome. Um, but yeah, the lighting is very minimal, so apparently this caused problems for the cinematographer of Eternal Sunshine. Um, imagine mm. being asked to work on a movie without using any lights, so they had to bounce a lot of lights around the set to increase like the ambient um, exposure, rather than just sort of cranking the main key light. So they use a lot of spotlighting, and it's got a sort of spooky effect as well, like yeah. a vignette kind of effect, like they're trapped in a world, yeah. uh, and they can't get out. So again, that kind of spotlighting it's not used for no reason. It's used in these scenes where they're literally trying to escape this, um, yeah, this dream-like state back to reality somehow, and they can't. Mm. So a lot of the movement was improvised, which you wouldn't have thought looking at the end product. Um, but they had no marks, and they didn't really rehearse, so the cameras didn't really know where to shoot. A lot of it was just done, <laughs> um, like two handheld cameras shooting 360 degrees, and the, I think they filmed around 36,000 feet feet of film wow imagine dealing with all that film stock so almost more of a, of a documentary-esque approach not so much emphasis placed on specific camera shots that have been shot listed just capturing the characters in their natural element correct 
Yeah, it's brave. It just makes me think of, it's kind of like, uh, imagine getting a load of camera ops up on a theatre production. I mean, it's just kind of almost going towards that level of insanity. You know? Well, that's cool that you mentioned theatre production because a lot of the sets were built specific for some of the camera tricks that are all done right there on the spot. So, for instance, in the house, when it's the last time that he's seen Clementine and he says something pretty hurtful to her, she gets up and leaves, and we all of a sudden see her enter a bathroom that seemingly has no exit, and then she disappears into the kitchen. And this was actually done with a special set built with trap doors. And um, cool. it's a pretty cool thing to watch in the making of if you get a chance. I'll have to watch that. Is that on YouTube or...? Yeah, you can probably find it. I mean, back in the day of DVDs, it was on the special features. <laughs> oh, it's cool. Yeah. A lot of it was shot in wheelchairs, so it's got that kind of wheelchair feel. That's interesting. Very Jean-Luc Godard, French New oh, Wave. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It's got that kind of uh, look to it, like a special type of dolly or something. But uh, yeah, obviously, one of the things that jumps out is that there's not much CGI. They use it very carefully in the mm-hmm. movie. Mm-hmm. So it's all sort of in, a lot of it is in camera effects. Um, you can tell there's one or two moments if you watch the movie, see if you can tell which bits are CGI. But it's it's pretty clear that a lot of it is um, sort of prosthetic or actual in-camera in effect or, um, yeah, sort of in the makeup department as well. And just natural things that they found. I mean, the the kind of iconic poster shot of them lying on the ice was just a giant crack in the ice. And it's so cinematic, yeah. that shot. And, you know, they use the rule of thirds both in that shot and on the poster. They use it in a portrait style on the poster. Mm. And then another thing to point out is the scene, and I know you're going to get to this, and I have some cool advice for you, but the scene where this great quote is uh, is read, they're, they're at a parade, Joel and Clementine, and that scene was completely off the cuff, improv. There was a parade passing through where they were shooting. Yeah. Gondry said, grab a camera, grab the actors, let's go as quick as we can. Mm. And they just jumped out there, and there's this kind of random shot of this elephant, you know, with its performer doing its thing, and, and you know, uh, Jim Carrey puts on the the sweater or whatever and pretends to be the elephant and it's just a very nice pure natural moment and adds Mm. a whole lot of production design to the film and it wasn't even planned well two things that you've said that i just want to react to one is yeah directors have to be ready to i suppose just just film stuff as it sometimes it happens it unfolds and there are some quite famous scenes um in movies where I mean, I'm thinking of a bad example of one. It's the Wolf of Wall Street where <laughs> DiCaprio is like beating his heart and doing that stupid face um, like he's listening to a metal band. No, that isn't it uh, Matthew McConaughey? Yeah, it came. He he's, he took it from Matthew McConaughey during oh, um, scenes. And, oh, okay. Beating of the chest was something that McConaughey does to get his <laughs> mumbling voice ready for the camera. Give us a chest beat, Matt. Um, um. <laughs> that sort of thing. He's like, he's like humming. I think he hums. I would never oh. do this something like yeah. that. Yeah. So he makes a noise. I think he's trying to warm up his, yeah, something yeah, like yeah. that. So it doesn't make sense to me, but there you go. It's maybe a nerves thing or just a, a, a mental actor, thing. Actor thing, yeah. Not that he has nerves, but, you know. We all have nerves, Matthew. The other thing that um, you mentioned, the the coldness of that shot, um, because when they're outside, everything's quite cold and you kind of feel that that's um, yeah. to do with, um, the the memories freezing in a way, and it's kind of oh, contrasted. Yeah. It contrasted the warm scenes where they're together indoors in bed, and I think that's deliberate the way they, they contrast it. But the, the the scene where they're sprawled on the ice, I love that moment because um, they open their 
their arms and they're not they're not cold they're um rising above the coldness there there's something that's transcending about that scene and i think it's to do with their body language and uh, sprawling themselves out on the ice like that it's like it's like the equivalent of holding yourself up to the flame but the cold version they're just embracing the the chill of 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 what they're going through i suppose yeah it's very true and there's a a kind of memorable line where joel is saying i could die right now i'm i'm just happy mm. and he and whether it was directed by gondry or 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 if it was a choice by jim carrey you know it's not over embellished cuz it is a line that could come off a bit um a cheesy but but i think it was it was nicely delivered so you mentioned about the forced perspective so we've covered that as part of the aesthetic and yeah, yeah. it can be indulgent but i think it just about um stays in line to serve the story because of the uh, the baby scenes and how you know they're quite profound they're funny as well but yeah. it's also important because the memory is sparking randomly in different directions and he finds himself somewhere random and to escape um his fate in another sense yeah. um but they do a lot of continuity editing as well in the story can you maybe comment on that as an editor so i think in a story like this it's absolutely essential that there's enough continuity carrying the timeline forward that the audience can stay with you now they do a really clever thing at the start of the film where they show you kind of the ending and obviously they pick it back up later on in the film but the way it's done upon first viewing it it makes sense either way because basically they're going to break up twice if you count the mini breakup at the end and so at the beginning, you're revealed a part in the plot, which seems like just kind of a normal, strange intro to a film. He meets a girl for the first time, and then she goes, you know, she goes in to get some stuff after a after a great night out. And um, we're we're very trained as an audience to understand that when we then jump cut uh, to a credit sequence and he's crying and it's kind of sad, we we just assume, yeah, you know, people break up and he's moved on from it. And then as an audience member, you have to pick it up along the way that what you're seeing now is actually in the past. And then it's there's another layer added on to it that without even telling you, <laughs> um, you start seeing memories that are kind of starting to get deleted. But it's done chronologically so that you piece it together that that happened before he went to the memory erasing clinic. So I hope that wasn't too convoluted. Mm-hmm. But the, the, the simple point is, they make you work as an audience member, but there's enough continuity through it to understand the basic idea. And then once you've watched it a few times, it makes perfect sense. Another quick film I'll just reference that does this almost way too good is uh, David Lynch's Mulholland Drive. Oh, that's crazy. Yep. And that's a film that you have to watch, you know, half a dozen times before you even get a grip on it. I don't think it wants to be understood in true uh, Lynchian fashion. Actually, I would disagree. Uh, and, I, and I will give credit to a great uh, professor, Frank Dietz, who broke it down scene by scene. And I hope to do this for some of you students here one day and analyzes it perfectly. And it's, it's non-debatable. It can be analyzed. Now, a film by Lynch that cannot be analyzed is something like Inland Empire. Nobody's cracked that nut yet. Mm. Yeah, he, that's a funny one because I think Lynch does sort of alternate between just obscure, mm-hmm. uh, like I'm thinking of Twin Peaks uh, series yeah, three. Yeah. That there's there's a thread that connects it, but he, I think sometimes he wants to be understood, sometimes he doesn't. But when he yeah. doesn't, he he gives you that's something. Any artist, right? 
yeah, it's like something else. It's it's another level. It's just a, it's it's like a respite from thinking about what's happening. It's just these crazy moments. I th- I think what's great are artists that dance on that line because then anybody who wants to access them can. And then if you're not in the mood to be, you know, so provoked, you, you yeah. can go watch something that's a little bit more digestible. Mm. Another film by Gondry is Science of Sleep, which wasn't so well received. It's also quite an interesting experiment. But um, it's not quite as clear or kind of processable as um, as Eternal Sunshine. Yeah, good movie though. Um, but yeah, yeah, slightly more abstract. Yeah. Um, the way that it's shot, there's a lot of like split focus happening in the dreams as the faces fade from memory. And um, yeah, I, personally, I find it um, hard to tell how much of that they did in post versus uh, in camera. I think they did some camera split focus but a lot of it is Mm. focus mapping and it makes me think of after effects where you can create focus maps and have complete control over which layers are in and out of focus and have them come and go um yeah you can it's just really interesting to watch it back um there's shots that just have things coming in and out of focus as he's forgetting faces um but we'll have to ask one of our cinematographer guests about that in future episodes to find out exactly which shots refer to uh, which techniques they do it quite seamless and, you yeah. know, when I, I know when I'm trying to do basic effects just in, um, in, in, in Avid or Premiere, they never come off looking that good. So I think it has to be pre-visualized, has to be coordinated with your cinematographer. And then, yeah, yeah, you should have to have a good VFX person. Absolutely. It's not just an afterthought. They've factored that in into filming and they've used the correct lenses and made sure that they can get the clarity of framing to deal with um, the, those focus layers, I suppose. Absolutely. Um, there's some shots that are completely soft and um, when he's waking up in the bed and his eyes just aren't working such an easy trick but it just really makes you feel like you are joel for that moment did you like those shots yeah i love it i'm always a fan of a uh, soft focus in shallow depth of field um it's just beautiful and it really takes you into that dreamlike state yeah like I, I felt like i was waking up here's a little random thing i'll throw in for those eager people out there which i'm going to be sharing in my uh wildcat course next semester if you've ever heard of the band Dredge, they have an epic album. It's called El Cielo. Mm. And there is a way to kind of sync that album up with Eternal Sunshine, much in the way that Dark Side of the Moon can be synced up to Wizard of Oz. Oh, I thought you were going to say you can sync up the album to your sleep and you can go on this intense <laughs> trip as you're sleeping. <laughs> well, that may be as well. Um, but it's a beautiful album either way. I recommend you check it out. Good. I've actually vaguely listened to that, but a long time ago. I'll have to we'll listen it to it together sometime, my friend. Sweet. So in terms of the sound, moving on. Uh, firstly, let's just say a great soundtrack. Uh, original music by John Brian. Um, he was nominated for a Grammy, and um, Beck did a great cover of Every, Everybody's Got to Learn Sometime. Really well done, because yeah. rather than pointing out something obvious in the story, which a lot of uh, songs do in movies, it offers a different perspective on the story. But in terms of the sound effects and the dialogue... Let's ask the same question as we did with the aesthetic, which is how does the sound serve the story? Um, and it helps us get to the core purpose of the sound edit. Um, we're not able to all have professional musicians work on our film. Mm-hmm. So as a sound designer, we have to think to ourselves, how can we add another dimension to the story and really make you feel what Joel is feeling? So if you watch the movie back a second time, you start to find the answers. For example, when Joel's memories are clear, the dialogue and sound effects are clear and dry, 
But when the memory starts to fade, you can hear reverb and other processing going on, and it feels like you're also experiencing the same sensation as him, like a degrading memory or confusion. Um, they also use the sound of strings to give a sense of time, rewinding or manipulating time, you could say. The movie does something really clever um, and effective with sound, and you can hear a lot of it in podcasts as well. I call this uh, participation listening, where the characters in the movie are just intensely listening to whatever is happening, kind of inviting the viewer to do the same. It's a bit like uh, the shot where it's blurry. You're just experiencing what he is. You're seeing what he's seeing, but with sound, they really make you listen with him in his dreams, trying to figure out what's going on. It's really well done. Yeah. Um, they do it by playing the sound of Mark Ruffalo and Elijah Wood's characters talking while Joel is lost in his memories. He can hear them as he's moving through the dream, but there's reverb on their voices, a bit like a voice of God. Um, it's just so clever. It breaks a wall between reality and memory in Joel's mind. It's funny, but it makes you feel bad for him at the same time as he's undergoing this operation on his brain as Mark Ruffalo and Kristen Dunst are partying around him on his bed without wearing many clothes. Um, but more importantly, it's also a clue that he's starting to figure out what's going on with the operation. And in a subconscious way, you feel that he might be able to retake control of the situation. So it's like a clue. And in the end, that's what happens. Um, it's playing with the rules of diegetic and non-diegetic sound, really. It's like toying with what's inside and outside of the, the story on the screen. Um, so if anyone's not sure of diegetic and non-diegetic, diegetic means sound that has an on-screen source and non-diegetic means sound that does not have an on-screen source. And it toys with that idea of the sound being something that is heard by the character it really toys with that idea it kind of breaks the rule as to um where the sound lives and who can hear the sound in the movie and it's it's really well done it adds to the sense of confusion as um, the character plays that out mm. i'm going to read out something here it's a bit wordy but super important for all the sound people out there including my students um, it's from jim batcho from jimbatcho.com that's g-i-m-b-a-t-c-h-o.com he explains why Eternal Sunshine nails sound design. So this is a quote from Jim Bacho. So in the movie, reality is represented using the standard Hollywood code of clean monophonic dialogue, complemented by unobtrusive room ambience with, you know, a dog barking outside, literal on-screen sound effects like paper shuffling, a keyboard, a computer keyboard, beer bottles and footsteps. Classic. Joel's internal experience of these same events, on the other hand, is suggested through unlocalizable dialogue that is reverberated, flanged, and spread out across multiple channels. So as he's going through the memories, the sonic treatment um, varies depending on the situation. When his memories are clear and tangible, the soundtrack is dry, free of noise, and perfectly intelligible. But as memory is removed, these same sounds are degraded using techniques that suggest loss. Yeah. Very good. At one point, Clementine's dialogue becomes fragmented and distorted. The music that we assumed was a non-diegetic score follows the same process of degradation through its gradual eradication. Finally, we are given subtle non-diegetic sound effects to enhance the sense of erasure. As a memory is being eliminated, we hear either tape rewinding at high speed or a fizzle sound as it disappears. These sounds are not to be found on any level of the diegetic, nor are they to be found within Joe's memories. They exist simply for the audience as a means of intensifying the idea that such erasure has occurred. I just think that's such a rich quote. Mm. There's so much learning in there in terms of thinking about sound design and how you can complement the story and push the empathy of the characters on screen into the viewer through sound. Brandon, um, are there any sounds in the movie that um, just stick to your mind? And if so, can you um, 
can you kind of do an impression? Well, there's two sounds. One that I mentioned, which is the uh, kind of end of a memory being erased, which is like blink, like that kind of technical glitch sound, like, okay, it's gone now. And then also one of the pieces that John Bryan does, which just sounds like kind of a looped tape recording almost musically and it's kind of just a like an arpeggio so yeah you'll have to watch the movie if you want to hear that sound so uh thank you just to mention some other movies as well and television that features this participation listening which is um joining the characters and listening to things that are happening which is i think um one of my favorite sound tricks one is called the lives of others it's uh or in german das leben der anderen and it's about the monitoring of east berlin residents by the stasi so there's a lot of spying and um listening in Uh, it's really good very well told story um and sound really is key to that story another one it's probably the most famous movie in terms of uh, sound design for sound people is the conversation by francis ford coppola and this is about again a surveillance expert who uncovers a murder through sound really interesting because you hear all of the manipulation of um analog sound in real time um, the mechanical interaction with sound as a medium. So super interesting for people who want to explore manipulating sound as a career. And of course, uh, Twin Peaks Series 3 gets a special mention. Yeah. So David Lynch, who wrote Twin Peaks, also directed it and also did the sound design. He plays a character that has hearing sensitivity and he has to change his amplifier on his hearing aid as sound varies around him in terms of um, the decibel levels. Mm-hmm. So you can hear as he does. Um, sometimes he has to adjust the sensitivity because he can't hear, and then his ears get blasted by high sound pressure levels. So that's something that you're supposed to experience with the character. And again, it has a certain effect on the story, um, yeah. which is quite abstract, but it's just really well done because it helps you understand that character. He's just different to everyone else and you can understand why firsthand through the use of sound design. Brandon, let's do Six Degrees of Separation for Eternal Sunshine. My favorite part of the show. Six Degrees of Separation. So, let's see if we can bridge six links out from the movie and then back again and see how far we can get to six links. Kick it off, Matt. Okay, right. So, uh, number one, uh, Kirsten Dunst plays the receptionist for Lacuna Company in Eternal Sunshine. Yeah, okay, Kirsten Dunst. I'm just going to throw it out there. Uh, Melancholia, she's oh, in the film directed by uh, Lars von Trier. Great film. Beautifully cinematic and one of his lighter films. Can we just talk about that for an hour? Oh yeah, that should be an entire podcast. Oh, maybe it will be. Stay tuned. <laughs> okay, great film. Um, so you've made the second bridge there. I'm going to think of a third, and it's going to be something to do with Lars von Trier, the uh, master of the Dogma 95. Is that how you pronounce it? Dogma 95 Initiative, yes, sir. Yeah, yeah. Um, he's done a lot of great stuff. Controversial guy, great filmmaker. Um, he directed Björk, or Birk, as you should probably call her. <laughs> Birk Gudmundsdottir, or whatever. Uh, I love Björk. Um, yeah. He directed her in Dance in the Dark, so that's my third bridge in Six Degrees okay, of Separation. okay. That's a, that's a great film in and of itself as well, um, with moments of levity and darkness. Mm, absolutely. And okay, so Bjork has also been directed by um, Gondry in several of her music videos. Is that not true? Yeah, I had to count because I'm a bit of a Bjork nerd. I think he did eight <laughs> of her videos. Wow, okay. So more than a, more than a couple. 
absolutely some really good ones you have to watch them all if um if you want to um a taste of, of of his style like i think that's where he really sort of developed his honed his style really was it wasn't her videos and radiohead as well and all the other ones that you can find online okay so great so you've mentioned bjork um so that's the fourth bridge uh can we take it to six i don't know i'm just gonna f- maybe finish it with the fifth bridge <laughs> and say that okay Michel Gondry directed Eternal Sunshine. So five links, that's it. Okay. okay. Let's see if we can beat that on the next episode. Okay, cool. We need to get to six degrees of separation. Oh, I'm sure in some cases you can you can get to more. Six degrees of separation. Just to wrap up this movie, um for me, cinema is all about empathy and this movie for me yeah. nails it. It just really big, ambitious themes and it, it just works. It's it just delivers what it sets out to do in a way that I don't think any of the writers would have foresaw but the the team who worked on it were just all so unique and were able to work in such a way that it just carried through to this really interesting rewatchable movie totally man can i can i read the quote from the film i think it would be a great way to end the show <laughs> with uh, the quote from the movie yeah it's really beautiful and as with any uh, little piece of poetry um it makes you think and then it kind of leaves you Un, unanswered and, and it lets you fill in the blanks so here it goes it's by alexander pope how happy is the blameless vessel's lot the world forgetting by the world forgot eternal sunshine of the spotless mind each prayer accepted and each wish resigned that's been the very first netflix and skill episode this is brandon wade aka way to be signing off Today's episode was written by Matt McGuinness and Brandon Wade, thanks to Royal Holloway University London. Music by Vast, inspired by Philip K. Dick. Search Facebook for Vast Electronica. It's V-A-A-S-T Electronica with an A at the end. Until next time. <laughs>